0: This is the One Thing Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rindy. The One Thing Podcast brings together leaders in functional and naturopathic medicine to discuss actionable information that may unlock puzzles in the areas of gut health, brain health, metabolism, and longevity. Please note, these episodes do not replace the opinion of your doctor. They are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition. Please discuss this information with your provider and discuss your own unique personal health history before adapting this information. Please subscribe to our episodes so that you can stay on top of the most current information in these areas of medicine. Mycotoxin and mold illness is finally getting the attention it deserves. This is taking place mainly in naturopathic and functional medicine circles, and the condition is still largely overlooked within conventional medicine. Today I bring back Dr. Lauren Tessier, who was with us previously to speak about mycotoxin and mold illness. She's a worldwide expert in mold and mycotoxin illness, and also is the president of the International Society of Environmental Acquired Illness, I-S-E-A-I, and she's going to speak with us today about the reason mycotoxin illness is on the rise, testing pearls and testing limitations. We go into how this condition is a neuroimmune endocrine disorder. We speak about organic foods and how they might be a route of mycotoxin exposure, talk about detoxifying mycotoxins and binders, there's a special offer for the listeners of this podcast. Please see the show notes below. Um, Dr. Tessier has offered a discount code to our upcoming conference on May 19th, 2022. This is the ISEAI conference, so see below for more details on that. So without further ado, welcome to the next episode of the One Thing Podcast. Tessier, welcome back to the One Thing podcast. It's great to have you back with us again.
1: Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me back.
0: Yeah, it's a see, like we were speaking last in April of two, uh, April one of 2020 was around the time that we connected. So uh, there was just a little bit going on back then. And so, what has uh, the last couple years been like for you in general?
1: Yeah, um, you know, I think the the last couple of years I, I think have brought a lot of uh, things into perspective in general. I think we've all, from you know, a personal and professional experience, have really um, just really brought back to task of what is important and kind of what is the the bare minimum needed for happiness and how everything else is outside of that a lot of times so um you know there's been i I would have to say that's probably some of the the bigger things that have happened you know what what do you get by with and how do you keep um how do you keep happiness in your soul and a sense of calmness when things are chaotic you know both personally and professionally
0: (laughs) yes all good things and you know the the also the amount of time that people have spent in their homes, right, has dramatically increased. So I imagine that's influenced your work a little bit.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's also more time at home, but also less time in the office and less time at school. And so um, it's just this idea that people have had a this noticeable, um, you know, like mold avoidance thing. Like when we send people to the desert to get out of mold, to see how their symptoms improve, we had that forced upon all of us. Some people got worse. Some people got better. True. You know? So very, yeah. very interesting.
0: good point. Yeah. I think a lot of people just assume that the exposures in the home and no, it could be car school, uh, workplace. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, depending on what environment they moved from to a more healthy environment or some, an environment that was more um, possibly mold exposed or, or mold burdened. So I'd love to hear some of the, the kind of wins that you've um, been experiencing in your, your work as a mold illness expert. So I know you're involved with some nonprofit work and maybe we can kind of start up hearing some updates there.
1: Sure. Um so I'm very thankful that for 2022 ICI is going to actually be having an in-person conference in Denver, Colorado. It's been um you know a, a really um big leap of faith, you know, to kind of go out on this limb because the last uh the last meeting we had was virtual and it was in 2020 and in the fall and it was great. It was wonderful, but it's we're just trying to get back to that um, that magic and that tangible physical community that we had when with our breakout conference in 2019. So, um, you know, we're we're really excited about a lot of the different folks who are going to be um, speaking, and we're going to have a lot of information about CCI and neuroinflammation and kind of how that you know intersects with mold and of course we have like the mold basics and the pre-conference stuff. So um that has to be a really um big big win um and Yeah, when is that? Um that is going to be uh May 18th to the 22nd. Um oh, wow. in Denver, Colorado. Yep, and people can find out more info on that at um I-S-E-A-I.org. Great. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's exciting. Congratulations.
1: Yeah, yeah. We're very, very excited about that. And hopefully we have some big news to share with folks about kind of uh, picking up on a big project that we have for our members that was put on pause once the pandemic hit. So hopefully um, by the time this gets released, there'll be a little bit more of a trickling out and people will be able to put two and two together for for us.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I have certainly noticed that mold illness is is a big buzz these days. So you guys are doing a great job of getting the awareness out, um, whether that's coming from all the people involved or just because this is more pervasive or it's more on their radar. But I certainly am seeing more patients informed and more practitioners informed. Um, and it's really climbed over the last two or three years. Um, any comments on that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um there's a a lot of reasons there can be like the good reasons why it's growing in awareness and there can be the problematic reasons. So, um, you know, maybe, maybe just biting off the, the initial problem piece is talking about maybe some of the more problematic reasons why we're seeing it, um, come to the forefront. Um, you know, we, we do have changing climate patterns, places that were once dry and arid are seeing Uh, more water issues and their construction isn't capable of standing up to those more humid, damp changes. Um, So we have this uh, climate shift um, on top of that. We're also um, having a potential uh, expansion of antifungal resistance growing And that's not just from, you know, our, our medical paradigm, but also in our agricultural and also our construction industry, Mm -hmm. all of those use, um, a, uh, uh, azole triazole, uh, class of, of drugs compounds. And you start to see people who are, um, medically naive to the azole and triazole class of drugs have resistance to, um, to different uh, fungi that should be susceptible to these class of drugs. And, you know, we're raising a weary eye to the fact that, you know, we use copper, micronized copper azoles on our pressure treated lumber. Uh, we spray azoles all over our food to try to fight back like uh fusarium wilt or things along those lines. So um, I think that there's a bigger uh, resistance pattern that we're seeing that's also bringing a lot of stuff to, um, you know, the, the forefront. Um,
0: yeah. So you know, people don't realize that. I mean, I know of categories like of foods, like grains, grain production uses a lot of antifungal, um, treatments is there are other categories that are, that we're not as much aware about.
1: Um, I think that there there might be some for non-grains. I would have to get more clear about that. Um, but also keeping in mind, we're feeding these grains to our livestock. Right. And then we're getting potential bioaccumulation or, you know, inoculation of um, these livestock with, uh, you know, resistant antifungal, so yeah. or a resistant fungus. So, um, you know, that's some of the, the, the more... Um, problematic reasons of why it might be, um, growing in awareness. Um, maybe some of the, the more beneficial reasons, um, is just that more and more people are starting to put the pieces of complex chronic illness together with this, uh, resistance to treatment. You know, mm-hmm. why, why are people not getting better, but why are they also getting sick in the first place? And so I think, a global movement from you know the allopathic Western traditional medicine, which has a time and place, um, towards a bigger awareness of functional medicine and naturopathic medicine. I think that that's really um, driving that home. And I really hope, in my heart of hearts, that we see that sea change that happened for Lyme happen for mold too.
0: Yeah, yeah. You said the word drive, and I I love that because I think the aspect of looking for disease drivers Mm -hmm. is sort of what we've really seen blossom and putting mold illness in that category of what's driving this chronic illness. And to have that on the dashboard of uh, things that we look at um, has really surfaced. Yeah. Yeah. And
1: it's, it's that idea and it's, it's a, the naturopathic history of, you know, what exposures are causing the chaos in the body and it's nothing new. You know, naturopaths have been dialoguing about this for so long, but um, you know, now it has a a, a term like the exposome and the interfaces that, you know, the body and um, yeah, it just, it, it's really, um, it's really inspiring to see more people try to dig deeper and
0: see what's going
1: on exactly
0: um, yeah on the flip side um and we'll get into this in a little bit you know is that it still is not acknowledged um in many circles so i'll kind of circle back to that and talk with you about that in a in a, in a bit here yeah. um to last time you were on the one of our most well listened and downloaded podcasts and i must have sent Hundreds of my patients to this uh, link by now, um, where you talked so eloquently about um, sort of a framework of thinking about mold related illness. We talked in that episode about sort of these four categories of mold illness and how there is some interlap um, from the standpoint of fungal infection, mycotoxicosis, fungal allergy, and also SIRS. has anything changed in that kind of Venn diagram, as you talked about? Um,
1: you know, I, I would say no. And if anything, I've doubled down on um, simplifying it even a little bit more for people, you know, every now and then I have someone slide into my DMS and it's like, well, what about cancer? What about mold and cancer? And it's like, well, yes absolutely aflatoxin gets processed by the liver to problematic intermediates and you're having the toxin cause the immune system chaos that's leading to the kids you know like there's so the way i found is um classifying it doesn't really change for me but you know there's always these kind of um uh funky things that people come up with. And I somehow managed to get them into one of those (laughs) four circles, at least in what makes sense to, you know, my, my mental paradigm of it.
0: Sure. That makes sense. And then also we talked about how one of the unique aspects of mycotoxicosis and and along with SIRS is that it's, um, a neuroendocrine disorder, meaning like these mycotoxins have an affinity for the nervous tissue, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that really gives a way to start the process of thinking about how it might manifest in someone's health and symptoms we might see. Does that still kind of fit with your framework?
1: I, I mean, 110%, uh, If even more so now. Like, if people can just stop and take a beat and think about the concept of lipid solubility, like dissolves, like, like fat in fat, that is where the rubber meets the road with mycotoxins. And so anything in your body that interacts with fat and lipids, or that nonpolar substance, though, that's going to be drastically impacted. And where do we find those things in uh, the liver, the nervous system, the endocrine system, you know, it's, so yeah, I would definitely say that's doubled down even more. So now,
0: (laughs) Good and yeah. you know the other when we talk when you talked about SIRS, um, which is more of like a systemic immune response um, to a number of things, but mold is thrown in the mix. Um, I was curious whether we could cause call that um, a dysautonomia uh, process because it seems like when you talked about that. Process it just really affected so many aspects of the immune system, the endocrine system, the nervous system, and then you start to see dysregulation of the autonomic nervous system in those settings. Can we consider SIRS like in the dysautonomia category?
1: I mean, I, I certainly would. I we see um, dysautonomia like symptoms anyway in SIRS. You know, so um, I mean. Yeah. The dysautonomia, if people think about uh, the four overlapping circles of the Venn diagram in there, I would more lump the dysautonomia as a symptom kind of hanging out between um, mycotoxicosis and SIRS, that, that makes The sense. fact that it can exist in both because it's some abnormal functioning of the immune system that could potentially be due to a, a neurotoxic element.
0: Yeah. Great. Well, good. Well, um, I'd love to kind of jump into some some other topics, and I kind of want to circle back. Uh, like we saw said before, is you know we're still in this place where even though the awareness is increasing, and unfortunately the incidence is increasing, um, there's uh, a lack of acknowledgement of mold illness. And um, I personally have experienced it. I have referred people to some of the most esteemed infectious disease doctors and this community and they just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, "Man, nah, I don't, I don't think this is a thing. Um, and there's others that are coming around. Of course, I don't, this is sort of like a, a one-off situation in my community, but I still hear it kind of uh, patients are afraid to bring it up to certain doctors. They think that they'll think they're crazy for bringing it up. Um, they'll think they'll just kind of like never trust the patient again. What what's going on in that space, and why is it still kind of half a uh, hanging over its head?
1: Yeah. So I I'll start kind of with a question of thinking back to to your education when you went through you know your naturopathic doctor. Do you remember having any lengthy dialogue about mold?
0: First of all, that was a long time ago.
1: <laughs>
0: so let me think back. Um, yes, I do. Okay. I, I do okay. remember uh, Dr. John Hibbs. Yep. Who we love so dearly mm-hmm. um, bringing up this topic to me and on his environmental illness uh, clinical ro- rotations.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so in the... Um, So I also had Dr. Hibbs. I was on his shift. He was absolutely wonderful. Um, I think that there's uh, a limitation, though, of what could actually be discussed in that context. Right. Like we can talk about uh, the different forms of mercury in the environment or, um, you know, uh, persistent uh, chemicals that are kicking around. But um, my experience, at least when it came to mold, was. Um, kind of stuck in with the sick building syndrome, um, you know, maybe a, a lecture, a lecture and a half, kind of about the, the bigger global stuff, um, but not kind of getting into the, the nitty gritty of what a lot of the issues with um, mold and mycotoxins were. Um, maybe I have a horrible memory and I didn't show up that day, <laughs> um, but, you know, I, Unfortunately, and it's not a reflection on our teachers, it's really a reflection on what is in the data. And so, um, you know, I've spent tons of time um, researching and learning and hundreds of hours. And unfortunately, there's not hundreds of hours in the basic education that are provided to naturopaths, DOs, MDs alike. To kind of take a step further, the bulk of our education in all of our programs is really based off of some type of uh, peer review science. There's mostly stuff in the literature that we're calling from to um, teach these new doctors. And there is not a lot in the medical literature about mycotoxicosis, about SIRS. However, there's a plethora of information about allergy and fungal infection to a smaller extent. Mm-hmm. However, allergy and infection are words that are just like synonymous with Western medicine. However, even that toxic element of mycotoxicosis less less so. So the the issue with the lack of literature results in a lack of representation in the educational systems. Now, if someone goes into, you know, PubMed, that's what I mean when I say literature and you go digging, if you go into the agricultural industry and you go, um, into the, um, uh, veterinarian medicine and kind of animal studies and that kind of stuff, you'll find tons of information about the impact of mycotoxins on health, Mm -hmm. but because of the limitations of the way, um, institutional review boards run, I, we can't knowingly expose a human to something that's going to cause detriment. So we have all this great literature um, on animals and we have a limited amount of literature on humans, but what we do have are these longitudinal like cohort analysis that are retrospective. These people happen to be exposed. And so it's, not the type of literature that a lot of people set their educational standards by. It's not the randomized placebo-controlled trials of XYZ. So um, there's a lot of problems with the lack of literature. Now, when we have a lack of literature, we it kind of is this ouroboros of lack of research funding. Mm-hmm. And then from there, when we don't have something really acknowledge vociferously in the literature, then um, we don't have diagnosis codes. Right. We don't have diagnosis codes in any of our ICD-10, ICD-11. That can't going, get
0: paid. It <laughs>
1: can't get paid. Physicians can't get paid. Patients don't have representation at all. Um, and then it comes back to no one's researching treatments and no one's researching testing. And so It's this really crummy, just feed-forward mechanism of the bias in literature and the lack of the evidence that's the gold standard. And what just drives me so nuts about this is the literature that we have about this stuff is... In the same animals that we test all our chemotherapeutic agents on, it's in the same animals that we test all our, you know, biochemical theories on. So I don't understand how we can have the cake and eat it too and say that literature is trash. However, the bulk of Western medicine is built on the backs of these types of um, uh, study participants. So I get really fired up about this. If you look at what is actually available to people with diagnosis codes, you have mycotoxin poisoning, intentional or unintentional from food. It infers food consumption, and that is it. Mm-hmm. I. It's just such a huge smack in the face, but that diagnosis code goes hand in hand with what we see in their agricultural literature Mm -hmm. and what we see with um, uh, uh, the uh, assessment of food systems around the world. Those are representative of the data that we have. So, um, you know, I just want to see more data of people showing up to just clinical data, but I don't know if that's enough to get an ICP. 11 code in place
0: for this stuff yeah yeah you know and what drives me crazy and maybe it's it's more of a great place to have a conversation starter with a doctor is we know that mycotoxins and mold products kill stuff right so Mm -hmm. like cell is a mycotoxin ish kind of drug isn't it that's one of these drugs that um if you take a uh, mycotoxin test the derivative of Cellcept seems to show up you know either if you're taking the medication or if you've been exposed to it naturally but um also penicillin right comes from the mold world and of course like candida albicans um has been you know it's a, f- a fungi and some of the products of candida have been studied so there there is like three really well known, um, medications or environmental, uh, uh, components that are good conversation starters, at least would you say?
1: Um, yeah, I think that, um, you know, there's, there's a middle road for everything, right? There's always a gray area. And, um, we have a lot of a lot of medications, even antifungals that are sourced from um uh, molds. We have a lot of the citric acid out there is sourced from molds. Like you know, I think um if you throw the baby out with the bathwater, people I think get it has that orthorexic paradigm that comes with all things mold and you know, all things fungus and the reality is like, we have good bacteria. We have bad bacteria. We have good fungus. We have bad fungus. So yep. um, I think it's a, a nice shoe in to at least try to take the nervous system uh, stress response down a notch so that the the threat level isn't, isn't there when you dialogue with people about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So the um, that's, that's a really good point. And I think it's always good to, to connect with, The balance perspective of our environment and how um, it's not about sort of sort of shifting it one way or the other. It's just about kind of how does our body and our physiology work with what we're exposed with exposed to because you can't avoid mold. It's impossible.
1: And it's in our biofilms. It's everywhere in our biofilms. It's in our oral biofilm. It's in our gut biofilm. Um, You know, and that's why I get, um, there are certain tests that look for like um, fungal metabolites. And I don't, I don't use those as much because you have tons of candida in your mouth. You have vaginal candida. You have, um, uh, I think there's even cladosporium. I remember doing, putting a lecture together for last year at ICI. Um, There's, cladosporium in some of the biofilm throughout the body. Like it's, it's, it's there. Um, the problem is when it gets out of check or it challenges the immune system or it starts secreting too many toxins, you know? So, um, I get, I don't know personally how to really thoroughly use, um, those, uh, fungal metabolite tests that sometimes you see with organic acids tests Um, They haven't been part of my integration into my practice. However, when they pass my desk, I go, oh, that's interesting. Um, Because right now, I don't know if I could draw it on you. And just because of your baseline of candida in your body that you might have, you know, an elevation there.
0: Okay. Yeah, I, I can see that. So you, speaking of testing, you more focus on those tests that are just, looking directly at known mycoto- mycotoxins?
1: Yeah, um, as a starting point, right? And within the context of what is someone's current exposures and or historical exposure. Um, I know the limitations of the mycotoxin testing, especially where they're urine, you're talking excretion, you're talking one point in time. Um, so I use them more as a screening tool initially And then where I find my clinical utility really lies with those is using them as a data set and watching overall trending. Mm. I, I don't worry about the one-offs. I want to know what happens at month zero, month three, month six, six, month nine to see what the downtrending and the changing, um, what that looks like, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, clinically speaking, can you sometimes not tell the difference between someone unburdening their storage versus a food exposure? Sure. I'll be the first to admit that. But again, I'm looking at global downtrending. That's why I would never suggest someone to order these tests every two weeks or anything yeah. like that to clients. Um, but what I've seen clinically, and again, I don't have the data to back this up. I can only share what I've experienced when folks have really huge increases in their urine mycotoxin tests i'm talking about 10-fold, 13-fold, 20-fold and it's out of the blue their diet hasn't changed usually if you go digging a little bit you can uncover an exposure or something well oh yeah i did have a new uh you know water intrusion event in my house or you know i started going back to you know that that old church again and in, in the basement for uh, bible study or something so um, what I've at least found in the context of what we can tell from your mycotoxin testing is that at least these huge giant spikes are typically not from inducing your detox pathways. I seem to be able to correlate it to um, a grocery exposure for people. Well, wow,
0: that's good to know because you know there's there's varied opinions about that, or at least that early on in my training, I learned else. The, the opposite of and that possibly that if there's a spike, it's like you're clearing it finally. But that's really good to know and to keep that in perspective.
1: And I, again, it's not just a spike. I'm talking about someone came in with like a trichothecene of like 0.5 and suddenly they're registering like 8 or it's Like 10. a scale. Yeah. Right. Because what will happen, you will see the urine spikes. That's what we expect on follow-up at three months, six months. You expect it to increase because it's leaving the body. But at that point, you'll start to see like, and again, this is just from all of the, the clients I've seen and the data I've gone through. You'll, you'll tend to see like a twofold or a threefold. It's never, it never seems to be the ginormous tenfold, um, so that, you know, that's just something that I have learned from my clinical experience. Your mileage may vary, you know. Um, and I also invite people to realize if someone starts eating um, more rice or if someone starts eating more corn or wheat, that's where you've got to raise, raise your eyebrows. If someone starts eating um, more meat that's grain fed, you have to raise your eyebrows. Um, but that's why when I work with people, we make sure the home is clear, we make sure that their diet is not changing. And so with those two things being the biggest like exposomes, the route of entry into the body, when we see huge ginormous spikes that aren't really, you know, that are just fantastically elevated and abnormal. That's when I start to think about the home again for people.
0: Interesting. And I just want to kind of poke my head in on that um response a little bit more. Uh I've heard recently and read some things about like organic produce and organic foods actually being um a route of exposure uh for for this issue.
1: Yeah. Um there's some data floating around that. Oh, this kills me. Organic baby food. Oof. Organic baby food, right? Because you're not using the the antifungals on the on the food is having higher amounts of mycotoxins in the food. And I step back at some point and I'm like, maybe I want to give my baby conventional food. (laughs)
0: Yeah,
1: (laughs) You know, it's, 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 is the, the risk benefit ratio, which is something, you know, you always spoke about. um, Is that going to be having that antifungal component passed on to you? Is it going to be having the the neurotoxic component? You know, at this point, I mean, I much rather have an azole kicking around in my system than trichothecenes. You mm. know, trichothecenes have been studied to be a, a potential biological weapon. Azoles, not so much.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, with um, ZA, you know, also um, which is an endocrine disruptor, right?
1: Yeah.
0: So that's it. Is concerning, <laughs> and it's like. You know, sometimes you're just kind of like, oh, we can't win. Like we're eating all this organic food. We're trying to raise our kids right. And it's like, okay, uh, this is an issue. So I do like to frame that. And one of the things that you most artfully said in our first conversation is how you actually really focus on detoxification pathways as a foundation. And, you know, that that's really the end-all, be-all of kind of what we're talking about is you could be uh someone who's just has like an Olympics style detoxification system and spend some time in a swamp and walk away okay. Some people have genetics that make their detox uh more um slower or deficient. Can you talk about and revisit that? Cause I just thought that was such a great lesson is how important detoxification is and how that's kind of where you're, you start.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think of as anyone in environmental medicine would, you know, that a toxic toxifying a system is going to cause absolute chaos with any of the functionings. Um, anytime people see a resistant, case, think of what the possible toxic component could be. And in that 1%, maybe it's mold, or maybe it's mercury for the other percent of people, whatever. Um, But thinking about the the toxic component and the body has these innate systems, you know, like body heal thyself. It's not, it's not pumping detox, um, mass action, love mass action, A plus B equals C, push the detox, push the, I, I don't do that with my clients. And if I do, I'm doing tons of prep work, but just keeping in mind, everyone has different detox pathways, um, or excuse me, different genetics for their different detox pathways. And I have people think about, um, the price is right. The Plinko game where they have the little chips that go down and they bounce around and, I tell people like each one of those little channels can be thought of as your your CYP pathways in your phase one, two, your your phase one, phase two detox. And each one of those pathways can get clogged up with something else. It's the reason why you don't pair oral contraceptives with um antibiotics. It's why you're careful with St. John's war and Um, some of the the HIV drugs, it's why grapefruit and statins. So you have things that can modify and or can induce or um, slow down some of the the detox pathways. And to kind of turn this into a little bit of an Ouroboros, we, we can have mycotoxins that block other mycotoxins going down those detox channels. So when you sit down and you look at someone, you're like, okay, well, what's happening with your genetics? Um, what is happening uh, with your family history genetics? What is happening with your sex linked genetics? Cause there is a difference in the mycotoxin literature, which is a total trip. Men and women um, will detox uh, Dawn, uh, which is also known as vomitoxin, totally different, mm. um, even though they'll have similar exposures. So we think about, you know, what's happening with your internal genetics, um, both from family history and sex, what's happening with, um, your, your food exposure, um, so much to say what's modifying your, your detox pathways? So I have people just stop and think about nature and nurture, what's going into your body that's messing with your detox pathways. What are you already given by just you being you that is slowing down or, um, interfering with some of these detox mm-hmm.
0: pathways? Great. And, um, have we learned anything new about binders lately?
1: Um, you know, I, (laughs) I, I'm a little bit, um, I wouldn't say pessimistic with binders, more of a keep it simple, stupid. Mm Um, I really, I like charcoal. I like charcoal it saves clients money. I've seen it hit all the mycotoxins for all clients. Um, and I, I think that people with a binder, with any type of binder are going to have some type of benefit. Mm -hmm. The question is, is the binder a surface area binder? Is the binder um, uh, you know, uh, positive charge bile acid sequestrant binder. Um, there's other, there's all different micro, me- um, mechanisms of action for binders. There's like, uh, a modified citrus pectin, which actually crosses into the bloodstream supposedly and acts as a binder. So, um, I mean, you can even go as far as like a IgG oral as a gastrointestinal binder. Right.
0: Um,
1: But you can spend so much money on the IgG. You can spend so much money on the modified citrus pectin. And meanwhile, I can have someone, um, you know, use charcoal pretty easily and get some good traction. Can there be a time and a place for bringing on clays or paying through the nose for compounded um, bile acid sequestration? Sure. But I mean, I, I've fallen more in love with charcoal uh, over the love years,
0: and yeah. Yeah, I was talking about this with someone. How you know when you first start out in practice, and you leave the confines of the, um, you know the the halls of education. You want to you, you sort of get into like lots of this complex stuff, and yeah. and then the more years you practice, you're like, wait, it was there all along, and it was simple, and you start to kind of like say, you know. Some of these foundational things are really solid and it wasn't just kind of old news. Um, So it's, I don't know if you've experienced that. Um, I'm certainly experiencing that. Like I I hear myself saying things now that my professor said, you know, 18, 20 years ago. And I thought, ah, that's that's outdated.
1: (laughs) Uh, One of the things that used to drive me crazy going through our education was well, why, why do you want to draw that test? How is it going to change treatment rationale? <laughs> and I'm like, because I want to know if the person has a gluten sensitive and they're like, yeah. And how is it going to change treatment rationale? Right. I don't know. Cause I want to know And <laughs> now the dialogue truly comes with my clients or it's like, Hey, I can treat you presumptively. We might not know when to put down one hat and pick up another hat, but we can get some traction with it. Um, you know, or if we order this test we can find out this this and this it's not necessarily going to change my treatment rationale so you know we can use it just out of curiosity and some people want that data set some people yeah. say i have a partner who doesn't believe me
0: right. i need
1: proof or i'm i'm potentially going into litigation or something you know so exactly it's, it's so odd to come to the point where I find these things coming out of my mouth and I'm like, Oh gosh, I I know exactly who I sound like and in what context. And I think patients also appreciate that too. Every now and then you're going to have a data driven, like biohacker patient who wants to know it all. And at that point you can really enjoy like geeking out with them. Right. Yeah. Let's order this. Let's see what the deal is with that. But um, yeah, just simplifying and streamlining as much as possible. I think that um, you can, I think the place for minutiae and myopic insights is in the building of the theory and the creation of the protocol and putting pieces together. And then I think it's reasonable to like pan out and see what potentially falls away, you know? Very
0: nice. It's kind of like uh how I would imagine a um an iPhone was designed, <laughs> you know it's like like all of a sudden the end product is a very streamlined simple device, you know, versus like all the buttons you could have right. um so the uh the one thing I do want to point out now that we're kind of on the topic of our our uh kind of professors and influences is like bill mitchell um used to always talk about how um you know we're we're treating the cause and we're trying to like help people get better but we we also can help them feel better you know early on Mm
1: -hmm. and i
0: think you do that really well in fact uh when i was living in a mycotoxin uh when i was living in a mold infested home a while ago, you told me about citicoline, and uh, that was such a game changer for me to help my brain get back online. I've since moved, and it's like night and day, but um, like my brain, I recognize myself again. Um, but like, I think it's really important for people to know that while they're doing this foundational hard work, there are tools out there that can kind of get you feeling back online enough so that you can actually accomplish this uh, this big task of healing.
1: Yeah. And with naturopathic medicine, I, if there's one thing that I can tell people from firsthand experience, and it's because I learned and I learned the hard way, there's no dogmatism in medicine and, you know, pure, 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 puritanical approaches to medicine. It's just, you're going to just circle the drain on this glory of perfection and you're gonna miss out on um being able to best serve people or or make some good changes while you're busy chasing that you know like just while you're busy chasing that the concept of like that pure life that naturopathic medicine puts out there it's like I, i tell people some of my interventions like if you need ibuprofen Take ibuprofen. You know, if you need something palliative, do it. And it's even to the point that palliation has become—I feel like during my training, potentially in some settings, it was a four-letter word, and now it's like I sometimes can't touch people when it comes to treatment until there is palliation on there. Yep. That's a whole concept of treating mast cell activation yep. stuff before you stuck detox. Like I'm putting someone on an H1 an H2 right. like and like all that kind of stuff. And that's not, that's not very naturopathical of you, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> you
1: can't get yeah. a shoehorn in there for treatment yeah. otherwise. And, yeah. you know, a patient is going to uh, really appreciate the rapport that develops between you and them. And you know, this, I, I'm, I'm not speaking to you. No, I think it's important <laughs> for people to hear this.
0: this. Because you have this perspective that, you know, there's like this good or bad or, you know, you can't touch this and you can't touch that um, when you come to someone who specializes in naturopathic medicine. But you're exactly right. Like the the most naturopathic treatment is the one that's going to move the ball in the right direction. So, you know, stability, if you don't have stability, it's hard to get better. So I. I can relate to, and that's how I practice. You know, I just, I sort of look at like, what's the right medicine for the right situation.
1: Right. And, you know, I, I don't know it all, I'll be the first one to tell you that. Um, But I know where I have seen some of my shortcomings and my downfalls and we're all blind to them. We're continually Mm -hmm. blind to them until we see them. Um, And I think a lot of mine in the beginning was wanting that, that, Pure concept of a pure approach, and if I live in the bubble and all this, and meanwhile there's there's mycotoxins in our baby food. In
0: our- <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It's like yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, well, I would love to kind of wrap up with uh, just some closing words, like some take-home messages that you'd like to share, and then just anything you'd like the listeners to know, and how how people can follow you. We will post all your social links in the Um, um, the description, but um, if you could kind of just uh, leave us with some closing words.
1: Yeah. um, You know, I, if you're a patient and you're listening to this again, keep your head up, keep your heart open, surround yourself with people who support you unconditionally, find a physician that you resonate with. Resonating with a physician is a really important part to healing. And so, Keep going, whether they say if you're going through hell, keep going. <laughs> um, when it comes to other providers or younger providers listening to it or providers who are isolated and alone in all of this, there is community out there. Um, that's one of the reasons why I became a part of ICI um, and then now operating as the president of it for the time being. Um, I felt very alone in trying to navigate the world of mold illness. I was looking for a community um, and it was just, I I never had the warm welcome, you know? And so um, one of the things that we're really working on driving home with MCI is making sure that we have a community that supports education in the absence of fear of judgment um, and so if people are interested in learning more about like environmentally acquired illness or, you know, mold and uh, sick building syndrome and toxins in the indoor built environment, um, definitely come and check out ICI. And so I'm saying I-S-E-A-I, like the ocean, ICI. Um, and I mean, that's what we're there for. That's our goal. Um, and just the phenomenal people who have been involved in ICI and the open heartedness and willingness to share um, in that organization has been amazing and I've been blessed to be involved with it for as long as I have been. So um, you're not alone if you want to learn more about it is what I'm getting at.
0: That's awesome. Well, I am just really proud to be your colleague and thank you for all that you've done for me, the, the community, my patients that I've referred to you. Um, so I, uh, I appreciate you know you're doing this, and I hope to kind of catch up again soon.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's always my pleasure, and it's always so good to chat with you again. It means the world to me.
0: Thank you. Well, take care. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the One Thing Podcast. Please share these episodes with your friends, loved ones, colleagues, patients, healthcare providers anyone who you feel might benefit from hearing these informative interviews. We tend to learn best from people sharing things with us. That's often the first time it's introduced. So don't hesitate if these the content of these episodes reminded you of someone that might benefit from that. Forward the, the episode to them, and I'm sure they'll either appreciate it or be appreciative that you've thought of them. So once again, we'll look forward to seeing you next episode on the One Thing Podcast. And again, much appreciation for you being here with me.